You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the land of 10,000 puddles. Did that work? It's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett's joined by... I'm Chris Moore. And Sam Mulberry. At Bethel University. So. There's no such thing as a puddle hockey tournament. <laughs> what? No, no. I just mean like as snow is melting and sure. spring is belatedly coming. <laughs> 10,000 seems like a low estimate. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I, I actually am glad that my garage is no longer flooded. That's my main achievement <laughs> of the last week. And the last week I should mention was spring break here mm-hmm. at both universities. So we should check back in. It's been a couple weeks since you all heard our uh, lovely voices. Um, Chris, I'm going to start with you because you actually did something notable on spring break. You traveled at least. I did travel a little bit. I spring actually, break and spring training land. What I got. Like? I got to see. Well, like not even not spring training. I got to see a, um, uh, a in season league game or not league, but in season game mm-hmm. for the Bethel men's baseball team. So you were in Florida. I went to Florida um, on with Bethel to meet some alums and to meet some parents and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. But along the way, we were adjacent to the softball team, the baseball team, and the tennis team, and so I got to I got to watch. So do they all travel together? Do they? They don't. They have their own schedules. There's several, as no surprise here, large uh, sporting complexes in Florida. And a lot of schools from the northern half of the United States all matriculate down there and play each other. And so I got to, while I was watching Bethel, Destroy St. Lawrence in College from New York. Um, our, our hated rivals. Of yeah, St. Lawrence. We, we, it actually took the, uh, several parents uh, working together to figure out exactly where St. Lawrence was. <laughs> but, um, but in all seriousness, I uh, just a field across the way. I got to see College of Worcester. Mm-hmm. I got to see Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. Um, all kind of in the same little uh, ball um, parks. Uh, I was going to. It seems like a very odd. Like I think. If I hear spring break in Florida, something else comes to mind. But yes. it is an interesting little, for a week, there's this culture of northern baseball teams trying to squeeze in as many games as they possibly can. I think our baseball team, in just a little bit over a week, played 11 or 12 games. Yeah, and they have, I mean, in some ways they have to, because having been a baseball, a high school baseball player in Minnesota, I know in some ways the season doesn't really start till mid-April, given the condition of our right. puddly slash frozen fields. We might get a blizzard yet, for all we know. It's so. entirely possible. Yeah. All right. Did you take in any other uh, – so you didn't go to any spring training games while you were there? You were I did not stuff. see a um, MLB spring training okay. game, which would have I know would have had a highlight for so – what was the weather like? I was warm enough that I got a sunburn. I'll oh, put it okay. that way. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I did let my daughter down. This has nothing to do with sports, so I'll keep this brief. But sure. my daughter, I said, what can I bring you from Florida? And she said, I just want to see a picture of an alligator. If you could just find an alligator somewhere and take a picture of it, that's Is all I want. Is she familiar with Google image search? <laughs> Thankfully, no. So I could have been deceitful and just shown her. <laughs> she didn't break. ask you to take one. She showed. No, she, she said, very specifically said, please take a picture of an alligator. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she's got you. I looked in every pond, puddle, uh, creek, creek, riverbed. and See, things no have dice. changed because the last time I was in Florida, I was a young scholar sent to a new faculty institute mm-hmm. uh, at Southeastern University in kind of like smack dab in the middle of Florida. And like on the campus, there was this pond slash lake and there were signs saying, beware alligators. And apparently yes. they were so hungry, they were actually coming out of these ponds in search of prey 
including the human variety of Broadway. <laughs> it's um, kind of their move, right? I would. Uh, I actually met, I actually got to see a Detroit Tigers minor league baseball game when I was there. So that's nice. my main takeaway from there that new faculty workshop that I attended. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting off the topic of very spring far. break. Uh, Sam, what did you do with your week? I did the very traditional Minnesota thing of going north yep. to more snow. Sure. Um, and, yeah, we watched a lot of basketball, went sledding, played a lot of board games. So it was fun. So a lot of deer, I understand. Yes, hundreds of deer, I think. We should talk about hunting as a sport at some point. Because <laughs> I... I not sure any of us. No one really, here is an avid no. hunter, I don't think. No. Uh, well, we'll talk more about basketball because, of course, we have to update you on our March Madness brackets. But I'll report that I was actually one state north of Chris, which mm-hmm. I did not expect to be. But I had an aunt who died, and I went to a funeral. And I mention that only to say that because when you have to go to a funeral, you sometimes end up taking very odd flights because you take what you can get. Yeah. And so I did this thing where I flew on Southwest to Kansas City to Nashville to Charlotte all in one morning. (laughs) And it left at 5 in the morning. And that was terrible. But the nice thing about Southwest is you have this thing where you can basically watch satellite TV while you're flying. And so I was flipping through, and I didn't expect to find much. But ESPN had a Major League Baseball game because Hmm. the season started that morning with a series between the Mariners and the A's in Japan at the Tokyo Dome, which I I kind of knew, and it sort of forgot. It's spring training time. But it ended up being significant because, of course, these were the last games that Ichiro Suzuki played Mm -hmm. in Major League Baseball, presumably in professional baseball. I would think so. He kind of come back to the Mariners and kind of made it official the next day. But I think we all kind of knew this was a special event. And then the next day Mm -hmm. he had this extended farewell when they took him out of the game. And it reminded me that Sam and I had had a conversation back a few weeks ago when we did our baseball Mount Rushmore. And it kind of struck each of us that we mentioned Ichiro Suzuki. He'd been nominated by some listeners, but maybe that was an omission from our ballot. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like this is a good chance to sneak that conversation back in and talk about what is the greatness of, of Ichiro. And Sam, I know you've got some comparisons. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, we can talk about him as a cultural figure, but but I want to start with him as a baseball player. So, Chris, as a fan of baseball, what's the most interesting thing about Ichiro's major league career? Well, I mean, at this point, I'm tempted to say the sheer duration. Like, he's 45 and still playing baseball. Right, the sheer duration, but the fact that his major league career starts at age 27. Right. I it mean, is, like, that that, that yeah. he's a he's a 27-year-old rookie because he has this whole career in Japan before. Yeah. So he comes over kind of as a finished product. But also, you, you would think somebody who has their rookie year at age 27 is not going to accumulate um, significant <laughs> statistics. Right. Because right? uh, players play into their late 30s, but oftentimes, by the time you hit... 35, 34, 35, like you're regretting those contracts. Well, so maybe this is where you're headed, so I'm sorry. But like the obvious comparison to me is Jackie Robinson, who was 27 or 28 when he started and ended his career, barely played like 10 years in the majors, probably because of diabetes. But, right. You know, so like had a great career, but not like great right. numbers. And I'm actually going to compare him to someone else because I was trying to think like what is the comp of somebody who was that type of hitter. So Ichiro is not a power hitter. Hmm, right. Um uh, and Ichiro plays a very long time. So what's yep. who would be the person that well, comes to mind? Ty Cobb is the obvious one to me. Okay. Um, I also thought of Pete Rose, who would Pete be Pete Rose would have been my comp. In terms of in terms of as a hitter. Okay. I want to come back to that because someone else suggested we should have put Pete Rose on and I have strong feelings about it. Right, that. but but I just want but I like statistically no, I was like, thinking I, about I think this. It's, no, I think Cobb is actually a much more appropriate sure. comparison. Like so, 
Ty Cobb is not a great hitter. Ty Cobb is a great singles hitter who kept right. playing for a very long time. Ichiro is a genuinely great right. hitter. But I was curious. I was curious to know, like, if you looked at Pete Rose's career and you lopped off everything he did before the age of twenty-seven, oh, how comparable are their careers? Hmm. Oh, that actually probably would line up. Like, yeah, you probably it, have like three thousand ish. It's or, fascinating. So, so Rose in from twenty-seven to forty-four, age forty-four is what he played. He had uh, 3,300 hits mm-hmm. um, in that time. Ichiro has just over 3,000. So yep. they're, they're comparable there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Rose, is, has, Rose has a higher on base percentage during those years. Um, he's a 381, where Ichiro's a 355. So not yep. a, he's not no, doesn't take true. a lot of walks. Yep. Um, their or excuse me, their OPSs are uh, Rose is a 789, Ichiro's a 757. But the interesting difference between them, and this is where he's more like Cobb than Rose, is that through those years, Rose steals um, 158 bases, and Ichiro steals 509. Right. So if you mm-hmm. take, if you factor those total bases into the slugging percentage, mm-hmm. their their OPS plus stolen bases, which is I don't think a real stat. I no. had to figure no. this out myself. Rose w- went up to uh, an 804. Ichiro's an 808. So he's yeah. actually higher than Rose. Rose at that. So I mean, that's the the 500 stolen bases post. Mm-hmm. 20, age 27 is pretty remarkable. I actually feel bad. Pete Rose has better numbers than I thought. But, I mean, I think the other thing is Ichiro is one of the best outfielders in the game yes. the whole time. Nine Pete Rose yeah. is a hustling, yeah. not yeah. especially great fielder. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, and that's the other part yeah. of it is a fantastic arm, right. nine-time gold glove winner. Again, starting at age 27, right. winning nine gold gloves is pretty amazing. And a Hall of Famer legitimately in – in the, one of the Japan leagues. I right. forget which one he actually right. played in. Because if you total up his hits between those, and that's obviously not yeah. the same thing. I mean, he surpasses Rose, I think, in terms of career hits. Or I think so. Close. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah, and then there's the kind of cultural import. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about, you know, obviously the most important color line in baseball is the one barring African-American players. And then there are kind of international lines, right? And these are very fuzzy. For mm-hmm. example, Cuban players play for a long time, but there's this... If your skin is too dark, all of a sudden you become a Negro League player like Martin DeHigo or mm-hmm. someone. Um, but the other one, of course, is Asian players. And I don't think this is really – there's no gentleman's agreement about this. There's simply the fact that baseball comes later to Japan. Um, you have significant international geopolitical tensions, mm-hmm. obviously. And that you know it takes a while for Japanese baseball to get to a level where major league teams are interested but in the 1960s, the Giants actually make a deal with the team in Japan to bring over three players. Essentially, they started in the minor leagues. One of them, and I always forget his name, so I had to look it up. His name is Masanori Murakami. Gets a September call-up in 1964, and is a pretty effective relief pitcher. The Giants want to sign him and extend him, and his Japanese team essentially says, kind of akin to soccer, no, he was just on loan to you. Mm-hmm. It was just experience. He comes back, and for 30 years, there's this agreement in place saying... Japanese players won't play Major League Baseball. And there is a mm-hmm. great um, ESPN podcast documentary about Hideo Nomo, who, who becomes break, the, right. the player who breaks that. And it's a really well-told story. Right. So yeah. that, I mean, that's where the comparison to Robinson breaks. Like, Ichiro is not the one who actually ends that. Hideo Nomo is. But what Ichiro's career did get me thinking about, because it ends back in Japan with two Amer- American teams playing meaningful counts in the standings games, mm-hmm. is... Could we get to the point where you actually have something like a trans-Pacific major league? Like, is hmm. that a, is that a viable kind of business proposition? And like the obstacles, partly that they talked about all the time on the play-by-play, were just the time zones. Right. Like they had to do this so far in advance of 
this is the actual start of the season mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, like players just are so discombobulated by this. You need time on both ends just to prepare for this. Like they had both played exhibition games kind of just to get into major league shape. Um, could you actually do that? I mean, it's the same issue that comes up when the NFL talks about playing in London as a permanent way stop, right? Right. Um, I mean, I, I think w- w- there's there's a couple models there. There is the idea of what if you have a a, a major league division there, mm-hmm. um, and then you can work some of the travel and you can extend the season. There's things, there's ways you can or shorten the season and ex- yeah. but keep the length because you could do Japan, Korea, Taiwan, maybe even Australia. Like mm-hmm. there, there is enough interest there in that part of the world. I would think you could actually certainly. I mean, the, the the other option is to do something. Now, what you'd have to do is convince uh, American fans and maybe maybe global fans, but convince American fans that something like this is legitimate and as important as the World Series. But there there could be something like the UEFA Champions right. League, where yep, if right. you had you had powerful enough teams yep. there, and I mean the the economies are big enough there to 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 potentially support this, right? That you that that you could have. What if the top? What if when we got to the playoffs, mm-hmm. it became. Uh, the you know the top four American teams and the top four teams in the uh, Asian Oceania. Depend. I don't know how we would talk about that. Like mm-hmm. in a Champions League, and say that's what the World Series is. Now. Exactly. That would be interesting. Right. I think yeah, I think it's ahead. much more likely that you end up with something like you described the, the Champions League. So you have this separate tournament that involves multiple leagues. I, I find it hard to imagine that the MLB would expand itself into the Pacific Rim and try to incorporate a third division or try to try to have an international division versus a domestic division, um, mostly for market forces. Um, not to, to say nothing of the logistics of actually having interleague play those kinds. What of do games. you mean the market forces? I'm not convinced yet that um, American viewers are going to become. Uh, really engaged in um, Taiwanese and uh, Jap- Japanese teams. But um, I'm also not completely convinced that um, Japanese and Taiwanese baseball fans are, um, are really want to follow a, um, Royal, a Royals-Reds interleague play. Well, but what either. if – so I, I guess by – first of all, I'd suggest, like, in a sense, one odd thing about Major League Baseball and most American sports is – You've seen globalization in one direction of labor flow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Players from around the world yes. will come to play in America. Um, what you have not seen is the reverse, right? Like American players play in Japan, but it's because they're, you know, they're 4A players or they're 36 and they're extending their careers by a couple Correct. years. So like, you'd have to get – could it actually be possible that Bryce Harper would sign – Right. Tokyo instead with Philadelphia. Right. right. Who, the who's question. the Hideo Nomo or the Ichiro Suzuki going there? And the second would be then you've got this. I mean, it's still a national economy in terms of ownership structure. Mm-hmm. I mean, except, say, if the, you've got Japanese investors and mariners, right? Like, that was the first kind of crack in that wall. And so, like, there would be a couple of sort of economic structural things to. But I remember in a kind of previous life to this podcast, I had asked the two of you to do a thought experiment on my blog in which I said, what would take the place of the National Football League? Mm-hmm. You know, imagine for a concussion or whatever reason, the NFL is gone. Yes. And so we kind of worked through possibilities, including the other leagues. Nothing takes its place. And the one that I wanted to suggest that I maybe thought more possible than you guys did was the premiership. Because mm-hmm. that is a place where you actually have um, American fans who will follow teams in another country on the other side of the world that do not have American players 
and they take it as seriously as they do American professional sports teams. And I would say that's even more common with the younger generation of fans. Well, and, and in part because... So what, why couldn't you do that in the other direction right. across the Pacific? Right, right. And I would say, say and, and, and part of why that would be, why it's, that's thriving more now and why it would be more possible going forward is thinking about how we access watching games, yes. both when and how and the ability to stream, the ability to mm-hmm. buy a package. So... Uh, or access to something and and the idea that we kind of watch things when we want to watch them now anyhow I mean sports is kind of the last bastion of you have to watch it it live but maybe there will be a point where that that isn't the case. Because Mm. it's not the case Every two years, depending where the Olympics are held, right? right? As we biannually debate, should they be live or not? But basically, like when the Winter Olympics are in Japan or in Korea, and the most popular event is the women's figure skating finals, so we we managed to make that dramatic somehow, Mm -hmm. even though it's very easy to find out the results of that. And we are a world uh, in the way, because we communicate so much, like um, we do this with movies, that we, we... collectively have a kind of moratorium and we say spoilers like like don't read this there yep. are spoilers like that might become part of a sports story to say just so you know the, the headline is is not going to reveal what happens and there are spoilers so if you're going to watch this game we should watch it first i mean that we might change the way we think about that stuff yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is all just a thought experiment. But watching Ichiro play his last game in the major leagues in Japan did get me thinking, where will we be in 30 years? Like, I don't think this is happening overnight. But anyway, let's go back to Sam's spring break. You mentioned watching a lot of basketball. As That's I think, right. I guess all of us watch at least a little bit mm-hmm. of the first couple of rounds. So uh, as you may know, we do have a March Madness bracket going on that involves the three of us, uh, various sundry of our families, listeners, other Live from AC Second podcast hosts. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we should check in on the bracket and and I think we have to acknowledge here that one of us is currently leading <laughs> the bracket, and that would not be me. Right. Nor Sam me. Albury, well, it's you? not actually me. I'm one point behind first place. Oh, Sarah's in first yes, place. Yes. Oh, I forgot about So that. I'm one point behind in terms of total score and best possible score. So right. we're, um, we've kind of separated. Boy, that's almost as bad as Bobby Knight getting on the yeah, Mount Rushmore. Yeah, but it's not over that. yet. Yeah, that's so true. So we got, we got a shot. I mean, here. I think each of us kind of has a path to victory. Like I'm, I'm sitting in the middle of the table right now. I only have nine of my Sweet 16 teams left in, but I've got six of my Elite Eight. I've got all four of my Final Four, and most importantly, I'm the only one who picked Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not go the Duke route, and so it's unlikely, I think, because we've seen Virginia not exactly excel so far. Mm-hmm. But as I was telling my son, maybe they've got their bad games out yeah, of them. Yeah, that's you right. Know? They so, learn from it. Yeah, uh, Chris Moore. I'm not sure you have a path, mostly because of. Duke as your champion. Yeah, you've got me covered with Duke, I yeah. think. And Sarah has North Carolina, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, so I, those the, theme, I, would, I would say the political science bracket is alive <laughs> at number five. At Michigan. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. so. It was interesting to watch that. And I think because my uh, my history bracket was actually – well, my, actually my real bracket was perfect the first day and then it all fell apart. But my history bracket was actually outperforming. And I think it's because, not surprisingly, Big Ten research universities do well – Mm-hmm. And there were not actually a lot of upsets, right? right. The first couple of rounds. It was That's basically actually chalk. the big. And I'll save this for a little bit later in our podcast, but um, we should talk about chalk. Yeah. And th- this is a very chalky tournament so mm-hmm. far. Okay. So, Chris, you did make one, or Chris Moore, you did make one request for Sarah and I. Do you want to tell us what your request was? Yes. One of my favorite things about regional sports in the United States is when uh, two teams of playing the Super Bowl, playing the World Series, is inevitably the mayors or governors of those respective areas will make some kind of cockamamie bet between each other. Um, 
and uh, you know, for a pot of Boston baked beans, uh, you know, a platter of Kansas City uh, barbecue. And so I challenged you and Sarah as the two clear frontrunners in our bracket to come up with some kind of side uh, side. I don't use the word bet or wager, wager. here no, at Bethel, right. but okay. some, yeah, yeah, some kind yeah. of side contest. It's an agreement of sorts. Yes. yes. So, uh, and, and you guys are actually the winners of this. Sarah and I were talk, just talked about this. We realized we've created something where you guys win no matter oh, what. I, I like love this. this. I don't know what it is. Because yeah. the loser between Sarah and I, and we don't even know that we're going to win, one of us is going to win, but the loser between the two of us is going to bring treats to the podcast. Oh, okay. So what I, what I am bringing, if, uh, if I lose, I will bring chocolate-covered strawberries and chocolate-covered uh, graham cracker and peanut butter oh, sandwiches. Yeah. They're phenomenal. Okay. They're great. What Sarah's going to bring if she if she loses, she says, I'm totally in, and I offer a Hoosier specialty homemade sugar cream pie, quote, it's fabulous. <laughs> so one way or another, you're going to get your sugar fix on the 252. Okay. All right. We'll twist, take my, that. twist my arm. <laughs> All right. Let's check in on uh, our three to see from way back in mid-March. Sam, are they worth the watch? Okay, Chris, uh, you said that we should watch The Fix, this opera about the uh, Black Sox scandal in 1919. You were unable to attend. Well, I had to go to a funeral, so I All did right. not actually get to tell but you. But you were excited about this, and I was like, I, well, I wanted to know, like, sure. okay, what, what are the critics saying, yeah, right? Yeah. And so this is from Ron Hubbard of the Pioneer Press. Uh, he's talking about the idea of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. He says... Uh, if you're inclined to think that this sound that this sounds like it has the potential to be a good opera, I agree. But <laughs> having caught opening night of the fix at the Ordway Theater Saturday night, I can say that this isn't that opera. Ooh. While composer Joel Puckett makes interesting use of the orchestra and has a cinematic flair for swells and surges of emotion, it's easy to tell that this is his first opera, for he rarely puts the best melodies in the mouths of his singers. Mm. And librettist Eric Simonson seems indecisive about whether to have this opera be about real human frailty or something mythically American and bigger than us all. Yikes. That's at, not a great review. At the end of it, I think the upshot was just go watch John Sales's Eight Men Out, which yeah. I think you've yeah. probably done it. And this read point. more opera criticism because that <laughs> was great. cool. Yeah. I like that. It was really good. I like that. You think, uh, you think that you know that phrase? This is not my first rodeo. Do you think people in that world say this is not my first opera? <laughs> right, right. It could be. Uh, Chris Moore said that we should watch the 2019 Special Olympic World Games from Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume it's worth the watch. I love Triumph of the Human Spirit. Like that, I, I didn't, I didn't know need, how else to. That's all you need this. to know. Can um, we, should we talk about Betsy DeVos at this point, or do we circle back to that? His, you might have heard there was a hearing yesterday, and apparently, special ed federal fund. Or, Special ed federal funding, including the Special Olympics, has been slashed in the current Trump budget, which I have a feeling this will be restored eventually. But I would she, think so. She had a very well. difficult hearing trying to defend, um, which essentially she it's said, not a, not a good look. Private philanthropy will take care of it, which this seems to be a bipartisan moment of consensus that we can probably pay to help out the Special Olympics. Yes, exactly. Okay. Wow, yeah. like EST broke out for a second yeah, there. All right, and I said that you should watch the uh, three-game set between the UCLA baseball team and the Oregon State defending national champion baseball team. Uh, UCLA took two out of three games from defending champions Oregon State to move to the top of the national mm-hmm. rankings, but Oregon State catcher Adley Rauchman went 7-for-11 with two home runs and three walks in the series, kind of solidifying himself as a, a major MLB prospect. And as yep. a character who should have been in the Hudsucker proxy. That's right. What a great <laughs> It's name. pretty good. <laughs> Don't you want to catch your name that? Well, speaking of slugging baseball slash softball players, we're going to be back after the break with, uh, well, I guess at this point we have to say a former Bethel Royal softball star. And legend, her, I would say. Legend, who once hit many home runs in a single doubleheader in Florida, and her brother, who happened to be the star 
starting quarterback on a really successful Bethel Royals Legend football in the making. team. <laughs> We're going to talk to two actual student athletes, Jana and Jaron Rosti, when we come back. This week in sports history. Chicago, Illinois, March 29th, 1968. Eunice Kennedy Shriver announces plans for an athletic competition open to children with intellectual disabilities. That summer, Chicago Soldier Field hosts the first Special Olympics Summer Games. New York, New York, March 31, 1923. Dance marathons become a national craze when Alma Cummings dances with six partners for a record 27 straight hours. April 1st, 1972, American and National League players don't take the field on opening day. The first strike in Major League history lasts for 13 days. Exactly 20 years later, National Hockey League players begin their first strike. Columbus, Ohio, March 30, 2018. Thanks to a last-second overtime shot by Enrique Ogunbowale, Notre Dame stuns number one Connecticut in the semifinals of the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. In the championship game two days later, Ogunbowale takes the last shot versus Mississippi State. Ogumbawale for the win! Good! Arike Ogumbawale wins the national championship for Notre Dame! You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Right, welcome back to this episode of the 252. We are back from spring break, rested, and ready to talk to some actual live student-athletes. Chris, it feels like we've talked a lot about student-athletes from a distance. We've right. talked about amateurism, whether they should be paid or not. Now it's right. time to actually hear from a couple of these people. Because uh, they're <laughs> living, breathing, uh, flesh-and-blood people, and we'd like to hear from a couple of our favorite student-athletes yes, exactly. at Bethel. The siblings, Rosti. Uh, to my right is Jana Rosti, who's a senior. And uh, straight in front of me and to Chris's left is Jared Rosti, who we think is a sophomore. I'm all but there's some debate about Yeah, there's debate. It's, yeah. So these are actually two very accomplished student-athletes, I think, on both sides of the equation. So Jaron is uh, accounting and business poli-sci, yep. mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, which is quite a remarkable combination by yeah. itself. Um, and then also, uh, Jaron actually started his football career at the University of Minnesota, redshirted as a quarterback, and then transferred to Bethel this year, led the Royals into the NCAA Division Three playoffs. Uh, very good first year, right? And then uh, Jana played three years of softball at Bethel. Two. Yes, three, three years, three years. Um, yep. Is not playing this year, but was a slugging outfielder for the Bethel softball team. Did you miss the spring break trip? Did you not get to go to Florida? This year I did not, no. Nope. But, I mean, it wasn't softball But you were busy year, so. because <laughs> yes, uh, Jana is double majoring vis- in math busy. education and physical education. Yes. So yes. you've wrapped up kind of half of that, and you're about mm-hmm. to start the second yes. half of that. Yep. Right. Can I say, I'm so excited for you to marry those two kinds of of, of disciplines as well, like uh, integrating math into phi ed and then vice versa. They're very FIAD different. They're math. very different. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'm thinking like geometry, trajectory. <laughs> I know of like uh, balls. Yeah. Calculating the distance yeah. over the curve. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we always like to start this uh, middle segment by asking guests just to tell their sports story, such as Diz. We've had journalists, we've had scholars before. Now we actually have athletes. So maybe just tell us how you got into, especially your chosen sport. You know, mm-hmm. did you always focus on one? Did you kind of make your way into it? Uh, and just kind of tell, like, when it became serious. 
curious for you and then maybe take a little bit about how you came to Bethel too. Yeah, Um, I can start. I think for both of us, it's probably pretty similar because we came from the same family Mm -hmm. um, and the same upbringing. Um, But our family has been actually very sport oriented. I would say our parents put us in all the activities as a little kid. And so throughout high school, we... Throughout elementary school, high school, middle school, all of it, we always played probably about three sports, sometimes multiple ones at the same time. Were your parents athletes or coaches? Yes. Or, okay. My, they both played for sure in Basket, college. They play, or, both played basketball they both in high played, school. Yeah, high school, they were very involved, actually. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, like, came down through the line. Um, yeah. And tell us a little bit about where you come from. You're both, is it Alexandria? or yes. mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, Alexandria. So a pretty small town, so it's able to actually get a lot of athletics in and like Mm -hmm. multiple different activities compared to sometimes I know once you get into more competitive um, leagues type kind of like in the cities it's kind of a little bit harder to do that but in Alec it's it was very easy to do three sports all year long Um, Mm. so I think that's what both of us did Mm -hmm. throughout all of high school yeah same same for you Jared yeah same for me I'd say I mean with the whole sports journey it was kind of weird for me that football was never really the forefront I was a baseball guy all the way up through I think eighth grade and then track kind of took over um did a lot with junior olympics so I quit baseball joined track and then sophomore junior was kind of basketball I was planning on going to basketball uh in college and then all of a sudden junior senior year kind of came along picked up some recruiting interest did a lot more with football and I was like I guess I'm doing football now and (laughs) so it was kind of it was a weird journey and I football's not even I mean, soccer is my favorite sport right huh. now. It's kind of has been for a couple of years as a, now. As, an, as a participant or as an observer? Both. I love playing. Okay. Uh, I spend a lot of nights. There's a lot of nights this fall where I just spent at the Bethel soccer field just <laughs> hanging out, kicking balls into the net. But uh, I love to watch it, too, every Saturday okay. morning, Premier League. So, I mean, in a sense, it, it feels like this is a less common athlete. Uh, I mean, for the level you're at, a less common story to have been able to do all these different sports instead of being – tracked yes. into one at a relatively yes. young age. We never specialized in just mm-hmm. one sport ever. What I mean, what were the benefits of that? Was did it set you back in some ways in your in your chosen sport? I mean, I mean it can, it can set you back yeah. in in a way of let's say basketball, you might not be putting out a thousand shots per week in, you know, September because you're playing football right. or in the spring when you're playing baseball or track. So, in that aspect it sets you apart, but I think there's a lot of good things that come from playing a lot of three sports playing two sports where a lot of it carries over and that's something that Mm -hmm. i think we were the beneficiaries from in that sense of playing more than one sport instead of specializing same with me like i wasn't i didn't do softball all year round i pretty much picked up a softball when spring came and i put it away again like usually at the end of the summer i didn't really touch it for the most part throughout the rest of the year so i think in that sense it did set me back a little bit but also where we came from too no one really did mm-hmm. all year mm-hmm. on. So it's not like in high school we ever really felt that much behind because a lot of people did multiple sports. Mm-hmm. But like he said, like you can pick up other sports. So like I was in volleyball and then I joined soccer and I just like dabbled with a lot of different things. But a lot of them are hand-eye coordination, speed, sure. strength, skill, like all of that. So it, it transferred over really easily and allowed me to do that. So. There's a certain aspect of not burning out too when you mm-hmm. just play mm-hmm. one sport and you're all the way through high school, mm-hmm. all the way through college. You can easily get burnt out if you're sp- 
focusing on one sport in specific. But as you so, came to college, I mean, if you pretty much narrowed down, mm-hmm. I mean, are you are you just one sport athletes at this point? One sport. Yeah, it's it's one sport, and it's at this point, it's it's kind of what everything's built up to throughout high school. You kind of choose one and, and stick with it. And I haven't gotten burnt out of playing football yet, and I don't think I will. But uh, it's it'd be easier to get burnt out if I just played football four years of high school and then went to college and played it. So I think in that sense it's easier not to get burnt out because I didn't do that in high school. Sure. So why Bethel? How, both of you ended up here. Um, Journey took the kind of the route through the, <laughs> through the U first. Talk about how you ended up at a D3 school and what it's like to play at a D3 institution. It's probably up to yeah. Jasmine. Yeah. So we have an older sister who's two years older than me, and I came to Bethel just because like I had visited it so many times and I felt comfortable here. And so one day I just told someone, hey, I'm going to Bethel. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to Bethel now. I'm telling people <laughs> that. So that's how I ended up coming here. And during that time for spa- softball specifically, they were switching coaches um, from Rod to Penny. And so really, I didn't, I wasn't getting really recruited at all, anything like that. I kind of more was just like, okay, I'm going to play. Like I had interest in here. So I toured it and I visited practices and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I pretty much mostly just kind of like hopped on and I think a lot of people from my grade kind of ended up doing that just because of the coach switch Hmm. and so Bethel for me was a place that I wanted to go to school but I I also could play softball at and so that that was really cool for me just to so in a sense the sport was important because it was an opportunity you would have had here that you might not have had at other schools yeah I didn't come here for softball for sure but it was very cool that I could still continue my athletics here and then still go to a school that I wanted to go to. Right. Jaren, um, you mentioned you had been recruited at some point, and I don't know if you said that was junior or senior year. What what does that mean for us? Like, what is it like to be recruited? <laughs> so uh, basically it's just coaches reaching out to you. I, at, at, there's a certain point at a junior year, that spring, going into senior year, it was every day a couple different coaches whether it be texts, calls, uh, emails, letters, it's kind of it kind of gets to the point where it's nonstop, where where mm. coaches are constantly reaching out because they're trying to find you know their one quarterback that they want in the class. So being recruited, uh, and it was different because it was from all kind of all levels the the Division One, the Division One A Double A North Dakota mm. State, mm-hmm. a couple of the Ivy League schools, and then throughout D two and Division three, it was kind of like a wide span. Of, of coaches that were reaching out so that kind of made it a lot where if you're just a division one guy you know you're the the pool's a little smaller if it was just big 10 schools but i i mean the interest was division three up to division one so mm. i'd say just the the recruiting aspect it's it's kind of challenging because you're trying to uh, narrow it down to, to what school you want to go to how and did you do that yeah. it was difficult i mean Minnesota was always kind of a place that's that's the hometown school that's sure. the Big Ten school and mm-hmm. and so when they reached out and and offered me a spot on the team it was kind of hard to say no and Bethel was always up there uh, for sure the first time I visited Bethel was in eighth grade yeah, he loved it <laughs> he was like I'm going to Bethel yeah I, Bethel <laughs> I visited in eighth grade when when my oldest sister took her initial visit and then kind of fell in love I've I've known Coach Jay since I was in ninth grade mm-hmm. and so it was kind of Bethel. Um, Minnesota, NDSU, or some, one of the Ivies, mm-hmm. and I was just like, you know what, like, I'm going to take my chance at the University of Minnesota, but when I decided to transfer, there was really no other option. It was like, I'm transferring, I'm going to Bethel. Like, it, it wasn't even a thought in my mind of where I was going. I, I definitely wanted to come to Bethel. 
So it does put you in an kind of interesting position where you can compare and contrast Division One, Division Three. Which this this is all college football, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I imagine there's some similarities. Maybe you can speak to, but uh, also, what are, what are the clearest differences having spent a year with both programs? I think the biggest difference is just the speed of the game. Hmm. Uh, some of the guys that you play against in in practice and stuff, it's like these are going to be NFL guys or potential NFL players. I know Blake Cashman was a guy out of Eden Prairie who I went up. I was the scout team quarterback, so I went up against him every day. And it's like this guy's an NFL draft pick. Okay. So that, I think that's the that's a little bit difference. Where there's still some very very elite players in Division Three. We had two of them on our team that are, you know are working Dawson Brown and Kyle Kilgore mm-hmm. are working to to pursue an opportunity at the next level. And those are very very talented guys and who could definitely compete and play at, at Division One. So there's there's guys you know in Division Three that that can play at those levels. Mm-hmm. It's just I'd say the overall speed of the game from top to bottom and the the depth I would say mm-hmm. is the biggest part because they have 75, 80 guys on their team top to bottom. It's pretty deep. I mean, a lot of those guys can play ball and they won't see time at all on the field. And and at the Division Three level, it's you kind of have your a couple of those really really strong developed players and then you've got a good chunk of players who can play but it's just not 80 90 guys deep like the division 1 level is right yep what help us understand um, for because most college students are not athletes i think at bethel even there's a pretty high percentage but still 25% maybe are varsity athletes what is the life of a student athlete like at at least the division 3 level you know what goes on that we don't see as professors in the classroom in terms of the amount of time you commit to it um, just kind of the challenges of having all these different activities, um, you know, the kind of community that you experience. How you allocate your scheduling. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 Um, so for softball, I don't know. Jaren can speak for football, I guess. But for softball, I think more of it's just our schedule is so compact in our two months that we're going. So leading up to it, it's okay. Everything's going fine. Like we're only practicing like two hours a week. We practice about six out of the seven days a week that's what's legally allowed and so we are practicing six days a week for about two hours but then once game time hit there's really nothing you can do it's we're playing four five six games a week even more than that and so i think that people don't really realize like our weekends we have games saturday we have games sunday and so like when most people are resting on weekends we are playing our four biggest games of the whole week and mm-hmm. so we don't really have those days off of a break and so i would say that's probably what most people struggle with as a student athlete for that sense of time um i'm kind of losing my thoughts here you jump in well i would uh, softball's way different just because you do cram all those games. I don't know how many games you have. It's probably close to 30 by the end of it. Yeah, we probably have about eight games a week, if I want to say, mm-hmm. which We're is fo- a lot. Football, <laughs> sure. you get those 10 games, and you get the 10 games. So there's That's 10 it. Saturdays yeah. where your Saturdays is pretty much booked, but then you have an hour meeting every day um, throughout the week, and then your two-hour practice. Uh, so that's about three hours. I, that that's my that's my been my experience at Bethel. It's about three to four hours by the time you total it all up a day mm-hmm. uh, throughout those weeks. But then so uh, that's in football. So in the yeah, fall and in, right? in the fall and then in the sp- in the winter and spring, it's just you lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday mm-hmm. uh, in the mornings. But um, I, the the softball season schedule, the baseball, basketball, I feel it is tough as well. We're just like you're on the road more. The mm-hmm. amount of games mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. is a lot more so football you don't have to deal with that as much it's just more the preparation the preparing 
is more strenuous than than what I would say um, a lot of other sports deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that strikes me from the outside in a place like Bethel is, I mean, the coaches take seriously their educators, right? That this mm-hmm. is part of the larger you know, whole person education. So, what do you learn from being a student athlete that you're not learning? as a college student? You know, what, what lessons do you take away? I mean, how have you felt yourself being shaped as an athlete, maybe even going back to high school or earlier, but certainly as a college athlete? There's just a certain aspect of how you spend your time. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are a normal college student, you have four more hours. Let's say if, if I'm in season, uh, normal students have four more hours of their day that they can choose what they want to do with. Mm-hmm. or Those four hours are pretty much disappeared for me, at least, and I, at, at the University of Minnesota, it was even more where you're you're six to noon. This is in season, six to noon. You lift meetings, practice, and then from noon to four or five, that's classes. Then dinner, meetings, study table for an hour, and now all of a sudden it's eight thirty, and you're going back to your dorm. It's like I haven't been here since five thirty. <laughs> so I learned how to allocate my time a lot more back then, and it really translated when I came to Bethel because it's still your. There's four hours of your day that are just aren't there, and then you go classes, you add those into the schedule, where how much time do you have just to, first of all, just do homework and get your stuff done, but also just time to yourself, which is important as well, just being able to to sit down and reflect on the day and kind of unwind a little bit. So just knowing how to spend your time is something that is very important. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think these, what I'll say is kind of a little bit more common to anything in life you can relate it to, but things that I really have learned through playing softball at Bethel would be just like the hard work, determination, competitiveness, everything Mm. like that. But then at Bethel specifically, it has been cool to navigate the competitiveness with the playing for Christ, playing like Christ, um, Mm -hmm. and how the faith aspect comes into it. Mm -hmm. And I know that's what's really cool about Bethel is because we can talk about that. I can add faith into my game and how we can compete like Christians. Um, So I think that's something that I've really learned too. Also something that I was thinking of is how to navigate being like a leader now in a college setting because in high school um, people were kind of just there. It was like our fun sport and stuff like that. But now college, like everyone's serious. Everyone's there. Like they're here to compete. They're here for Mm -hmm. that. And so to navigate team dynamics is something that I've actually learned a lot about Mm -hmm. and how I can be a leader in my own way and how I can just work with other people who all kind of have that same goal, which was not something that I had gotten in high school, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so Jan, to pick up on the element of faith, do you feel like, I mean, as a Bethel athlete, do you play differently? And your competitors, do you make do you make meaning of what you're doing differently than maybe your competitors? Because I assume you've got friends who are playing mm-hmm. at other Mayak schools, other schools you play. You probably compare notes. Yeah. Like. And, I mean, it's hard to say that because I don't know what other people are thinking in their head. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're playing that. I know for me it has been – we've talked a lot about, like, why we're playing and who we're playing for. Mm. And so that's something that's really thought – stuck into my head a lot I mean last year like in Florida I was struggling with like coaches or teammates or something and I was like why am I even worrying about this like I'm literally here just to play play for God like whatever and that was the day that I had like my like best day of my whole entire softball career you should talk about that best day (laughs) I know you're you're modest (laughs) but no it's okay yeah 
Um, I just had a really, really good hitting day that day. I think I had, like, four home runs in, like, one day, which has never <laughs> happened to me. That was, like, half my home runs of all last year. So it was just a good day, and it's just cool to look back mm-hmm. knowing that that day I kind of started frustrated, and then I went and was, like, I literally was – I remember sitting in left field, and I was just, like, why am I upset about other people? Like, I'm literally here just to play. I get to play. I get to play mm-hmm. for God. And then, like, to – at bats later like I just started this run and like I didn't think about it in the moment but like looking back at it that's just something really cool to kind of see that's kind of the thing that we talk about on the team is just you know God sent his son so that we could run so who else gets to do what we get to do you know so let's just play for him and just play free and that's Mm -hmm. that's a big part that's a big aspect of what our team is Mm -hmm. and a great account to follow is the, the BU chain gang I don't know if anyone ever has seen that account on Twitter, but uh, it's the Frejo and some of the basketball guys work the chains, and they're on the opposite side of the field. And so, just to read some of the tweets about what some of these the other teams and their coaches and their players say, mm. it's like when I read through those after the game, it's like this is nothing like what goes on on our sideline. Mm. And it's just like our guys were just full of love for each other and and love for the game and and love for the Lord. And I think that's different. That's what sets Bethel apart from a lot of different teams across the nation is, is that love. So, um, I want to ask a slightly different question. Uh, this is a historian and a political scientist talking to you, so I need to ask a political science-y kind of question, which is uh, one, of the feature, one of the themes of the courses that we're looking into is how institutions uh, play roles in shaping athletics. And one of the big institutions that you guys encounter is the NCAA. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious... As you've now, as you've gone through a college... They don't listen to this, by the way, so <laughs> just say whatever. You can go with uh, No, go ahead, Chris. In what ways have you encountered the NCAA? As a, as a student athlete, especially at D3 school, what kind of impact does the NCAA have on your life? Um, I would say you don't really... S- I haven't noticed the NCAA as much at this level than I have at, at the Division One level. I, okay. You do see... Come playoff time in football, mm-hmm. now the NCAA gets to put up all their banners and sure. put them around the football field, and now you know they charge for what students to come into the game, and right. it, it's a it's becomes a business in that sense because now it's playoff time. Right. Um, I know my friend plays basketball at St. Thomas, and uh, they make the playoffs and they get the patches, NCAA patches that they're supposed to put on their backpacks and their coats and sure. all these different things. So. You kind of see subtle things like that with okay. the NCA. I think a lot of it at the Division One level is the NCA is supposed to be there to protect the student athletes, and a lot of time that doesn't happen. Hmm. Just in the sense that there's supposed to be a certain numbers, a certain number of hours that are allocated towards sports that the coaches can be there and, and run team right. activities, right. and a lot of times those hours go over, and you ta- it's kind of a, a hard. Thing to deal with compliance in the NCA and and sure. how do you approach that situation and the NCA really doesn't seem like they're doing anything to help the student athletes mm. which is interesting is something that I'd seen at that level and also they came out with a great commercial uh, if you guys if either of you saw that uh, they ran it a couple times during March Madness. It's the life of a student athlete, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the guy wakes up and does his daily routine, and then goes back to sleep. And it was funny to see some of the the comments on Twitter and just comments in general about the commercial. And it's 
I haven't I hadn't seen one comment that was positive of that commercial that was just mm-hmm. whether it's athletes saying this isn't how it is like mm-hmm. this isn't how a single one of my days went right like, it's things like that where it's just like that's that's some of the stuff that you, know, you talk about institutions the NCAA in college sports is the institution which right. is which is also interesting that it's the institution it's the only institution which is interesting as well so another commercial that NCAA puts out maybe this can be our exit is uh I forget how it's worded exactly, but it's basically most of the athletes who um, compete at the college level in America are not going to become pros, mm-hmm. right? And so this is maybe more a question for Jana because you're nearing the end of your college career. You're actually not playing softball now. Um, but it's been a big part of your life, right? Yeah. Not softball, yeah. but sports generally. But most student athletes, whether D1, certainly D3, um, you're kind of reaching the end of that and you're transitioning into a different phase of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if you've experienced this already because you've been doing other things yeah. besides that. Or maybe even, Jaron, you've started to think to this point, like there will come a time where you're not playing sports for this many hours every single day and mm-hmm. it doesn't structure your life and give it meaning. Like what what does that transition felt like or what, yeah. what do you anticipate about it? Yeah, it was kind of a hard... I made this decision not to play softball last year, actually, before my season even started last year. And so it was kind of a unique unique situation in that sense because I knew last year, before I even started playing, that I was not going to be playing um, this year. And so that knowing that going into last season helped me to just enjoy my last year as much as possible. It was like, mm. this is the last time I get to do this. This is the last time. And I think a lot of seniors go through those type of moments too. They're like, mm. they know it's their last time. And I think it's difficult depending on the person. I've heard some people really, really struggle with that transition of knowing that it's their last and then getting out and they're like, I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I have filled up that time with so many other things that I have enjoyed Mm -hmm. greatly like so much and so it's been an easier transition for me but it's definitely a different feeling um knowing that I'm not working out every day and I have to do that on my own Mm -hmm. and I know that I'm no longer going to have a team sense like that and like the competitiveness and like wondering like oh like what would have I have done this year if I would have still been in softball and like how would that have impacted me so it was a hard transition, but also a pretty easy one in the sense that just because I have so many things that I very much enjoy right now, mm-hmm. that it's not a regret for me at all. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to hear because I mean, I can kind of imagine how you would find other routines, like it would take a while. Oh, yeah. But well, how you do you do. replace the community, the relationship, like competitiveness yeah. is really important, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's an important experience. And all of a sudden, where yeah. do you, does that translate into other things? Like, do you find yourself being competitive? In teaching and yeah. your work, I don't know if that really fits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the, com- does. for the community part, there's definitely, especially at Bethel, I've had it easy because like I've still had a very tight community here. Mm-hmm. I'm still friends with a lot of girls from the softball team. If you're leaving as a senior and now going into a whole different community, I think mm. that would be maybe a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm honestly not the most competitive person. Like that was probably one of my faults at a college <laughs> college level. Is like I wasn't the most competitive person out there, and so. Um, I don't think that has had as much to do with it. But, I mean, you do carry it into other things that you're doing. You want to be the best at what you're doing. And for me, it's more I want to be the best at what I'm doing rather than the best out of everyone that Mm -hmm. I'm doing it against, I guess. So that helps me out. Hmm. Okay. Well, knowing how busy you both are, thanks for taking some time to talk to us on the course. It's really helpful for us. Okay. We'll be right back.
hello. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six foot four. I wish I was like six foot nine. Hey, Sam Mulberry here for the Live from AC Second Network. If you're enjoying this show, you should check out the other podcasts on the network. Tweet Victory, our first micropod. Twitter can be a toxic place, but not when you're following the Twitterverse's newest, funniest feed, at Annie underscore Berglund, and Twitter's silentist account, at CWC Radio. We dive into the best of our tweets five minutes at a time. Election Shock Therapy, three Bethel political scientists and me, except for when I have a meeting, come together to break down what's happening in the political world. Subscribe to the Live from AC Second podcast network on your favorite app. Leave us a five-star review and jump into the conversation by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Fine bread from a man in Brussels. He was six foot four and full of muscle. I said, do you speak of my language? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. And he said, I come from a land on a love. Read us low and mention All right, as always, we're running out of time. Let's do three to see Chris kick us off. Well, of course, I'm going to encourage you to tune in this weekend to check out the uh, Sweet 16 round of the... the Am I allowed to say Sweet 16 round? No, no, that's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll just call it the big games. Yeah. <laughs> the big games. I, what we, we we should actually go into like all the different nomenclature that's used around the proprietary names of major sporting start? events. Like, has that always been a thing? No, it, it was, can't be. Yeah, it was an eventual thing. I, okay. yeah. it seems like an early '90s. Probably Super Bowl with the Super Bowl, but the uh, NCAA tournament is there as well. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, we've got 16 teams left in the men's uh, bracket for the uh, for the NCAA national championships, and. This is one of the most chalky Sweet 16s that we have had in uh, in recent history. Do we need to explain what chalk is? Yes. So if you only pick the uh, higher-seeded team, you're picking chalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, uh, every number one seed, every number two seed, and almost every number three seed has advanced. Uh, so the, the lowest seed that's lost so far is, is a number three seed. Um, and... Uh, um, uh, this is the highest. Uh, sorry, the highest seed that is still alive in the tournament is number twelve, Oregon. Oregon number yeah. twelve, Oregon, and nobody else is on the bottom half of the seeding. And Oregon, at one point this year, was like top fifteen in the country, right? Right, and they yeah. slipped and stumbled, right. and so maybe they're just returning to form. So all the number one seeds are still alive. All the number two seeds are still alive, and so there's some great high octane basketball. Um, in the in the offings, and let me encourage you: if you're not going to just watch Duke and Virginia Tech, which should be a great game, check out Purdue versus Tennessee. Um, two teams with really stingy defenses that are really well coached and very well schemed. It could be a really interesting strategic game to watch. Two really good nicknames too. I like Boilermakers, Boilermakers, and Volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, Sam, uh, we're you're going to notice the theme in the next couple of weeks <laughs> for me because we are entering. This, the big season for one of my fav- secretly favorite sports, and that is horse racing. So on March 30th is the Dubai World Cup night, which mm-hmm. is the richest day in horse racing with purses totaling $35 million. And it's capped by the Dubai World Cup, a 10-furlong race, which carries a $12 million purse just for that one race. Uh, the favorite in the race is defending champion Thunder Snow, 
at three to one. It's looking to become the race's only two-time winner. So, speaking of kind of globalization of sports competitions, do you, I mean, is this all kind of Persian Gulf-based horses, no. or do horses fly in from around? And the I was world I was this? telling you that I was actually gonna gonna give you guys a pick, but this horse got scratched. It was a D. Wayne Lucas horse, so like oh, okay. this is horses from around the world. Because if there's a twelve million million dollar purse, you want to get in. Well, on and that. we see the other direction, like the Kentucky Derby. You've Absolutely, got own yep. horses. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Sam is a member of the horse he set. We'll be <laughs> we'll be probing this on future episodes. Okay, I'm gonna head to another part of the world where the Australian Football League enters its second weekend. The West Coast Eagles continue their title defense against the Great. Western Sydney Giants, who took down Essendon in last weekend's opener. Um, by the way, I thought I'd slip in just a little bit of current events here. We had talked a few weeks ago about the problem of racism in international soccer. Mm-hmm. Well, it shows up in Aussie rules football too. Uh, just recently, after the first, actually, yeah, after the first weekend, there was social media abuse of a player for uh, West Coast, Liam Ryan, who's a forward um, of Aboriginal or Indigenous descent. And just either this morning or yesterday, I forgot how the dateline works, um, a fan for the Richmond Tigers was banned for two years for having used racial epithets um, mm. in the direction of Ryan. So th- this shows up in lots of different sports. Maybe it's just a good reminder that it's a topic we need to come back to at some point in the conversation. Okay, well, I think we kind of you know got back into our stride pretty quickly. We appreciate the Rosties coming in to help us understand what it's like to be a student athlete um, at a place like Bethel especially, but generally in the NCAA. Uh, any final words, guys? I'll have a final word. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, um, don't miss the trash cans. You're throwing out your old journals. And uh, <laughs> that's an inside joke for anybody who's in our hallways these days. Uh, thanks for listening to us. You can always get in touch with us uh, live from ac2nd at gmail.com. Go Royals. Go Royals.